picture of the building. Yeah, they're too sweet. Yeah, mostly if you want to go to the Italian and get Rostaco. Can we start? With an R. Can we start? I hope what just began a few minutes ago will be less wild and more intimate. <laughs> Those two things probably need to go together. Um, let's start. Let's start. Can all of you pull out um, the wind hover and supernatural love? Are going to say a prayer? Yes, we are. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass, for your words to us, your presence with us, um, for this great offering here, for the willingness of people to, um, to trust, to open, to see what's there when they don't know, um, all of us. Um, I ask for a special blessing as we go forward. Um, help us to give ourselves to what these men have offered to us, um, to know you more deeply, um, to be strengthened in our knowledge of our own faith, um, and um, to be given a greater courage to take it to our world. Um, and everything that happens, help us to come to know you more deeply, to love you, and bring you so that people know you through us. Give us the courage, a stronger faith to do that. Let a blessing be upon our work together here. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you all look at the wind hover? I know we did that last week, um, um, but I'd like to just read it again for people who were not here. I'm, I'm not going to take any time with the wind hover. I want to just read it, but just a brief word. Um, um, the, the wind hover is written in an Italian sonnet by Gerard Manley Hopkins, who is a Catholic priest, who went out for a morning walk, and as he was you know, looking at the dawn before him, he saw a bird in the sky. And obviously what happened for a moment, this, this wind hover in his flight through the sky reached a point where he hovered for a second and mastered the wind. I mean, he must have paused in a way that so defies gravity that it affected him. He went home and wrote this poem. The first part of the poem, the octave, the first eight lines, it's an Italian sonnet, describe the bird. And you'll see when, when I read it that he, he, he describes the bird in a way that shows the bird has this affinity with the morning, with the dawn. He relates him to the Dauphin. And if you know, he, he's the prince to the throne, as Christ is. So the analogy is between the bird and Christ in the morning. He belongs to the morning light, that sunlight, that coming of the light in the morning. 
And he's so overwhelmed by the moment that he goes home and he writes something, um, and you'll see what happens. You'll hear the onomatopoeia, the, the, the descriptions imitate the flight of the bird. And as we move through it, you'll see that the whole motion of the poem moves forward beautifully and then stops on this one word, buckle. And you know that the word buckle um, has two meanings. It means to gather things, to buckle them, but it also means to be crushed, to collapse, to buckle under the weight. Because in that moment, thanks, in that moment, um, he sees Christ on the cross. In the flight of this bird, Christ is there. I mean, that's what he sees. And he'll reflect on it in the sestet, it's the six lines, because typically in, a, in an Italian sonnet, you'll get the experience in the octave and then a f reflection on it. And in that sense, the poem, this is so important, and it so often gets passed over by teachers teaching it. The poem enacts what we do with our own souls, with our own minds. Because you know we go through the world experiencing things with our senses the same way an animal does. We see things with our senses. But we do something animals can't. We reflect on them. We go to a level of something that's more universal to reflect on it, to see a truth. And in the sestet, he says, there's no wonder in this. There's no wonder in it. Christ is everywhere. He's in the work that a farmer does, the, the ordinary plowing that a farmer does. You know that when farmers work the soil, it starts in a clay um, quality. But as he works the earth, the clay dirt begins to become finer and finer, and it produces a glow, a cilium. A, a light that comes from it, it's emitted from it. And he describes the fire going out, and you know that when a fire burns, that in the early part of the fire, it, it rages, it just flames. But at that moment when the fire starts to go out, that is when it dies, when it dies, you know that the embers gash themselves, and they produce this beautiful vermilion color, this light. So what he's showing us is, everywhere in nature, there's this logos. Christ is there even if we don't see it. Um, this is probably, I mean, you'll see it in other poems of his that we read, but this to me has always been one of my favorites since the first time I read it. So what he's showing is that Christ is present. Everything, everything moving towards death is somehow a revelation of what happened with him on the cross, even if we don't see it. And you'll, you'll see it. Not only do we go back to experience, because remember I said, the knowledge that poetry gives us is knowledge as experience. It returns us to the world. That's what poetry does. It returns us to the world. But it always does it with a music and a truth that so often we miss. It's like a grace. We're allowed to go back to the world to feel something we didn't before. Hopefully, so that when we come out of the poem, that's what we take to our own world. Because we don't see things the same way, hopefully, anymore. Okay, so, and I took time to talk about Hopkins, I'm, gonna, I'm not tonight, Gerard, Gerard Manley Hopkins was a Catholic priest, he was part of the Tractarian movement in 19th century when there was this great reform movement going on in the Protestant church, and it was during that reform movement that a, a number of men who wanted to reform the Protestant church, when they went back and started reading the history of the church, they discovered the, product, the problem wasn't in the Protestant church, I mean, it wasn't in the Protestants needing reform. It, it was the break from Catholicism. 
and there was a massive um, conversion taking place. John Henry Newman was a part of that, converted, and Hopkins was another one of the converts. And you know from what I said last night, when he converted, it, it, it broke his father's heart. I mean, they, there was an estrangement between Hopkins and his dad, because um, his dad thought he was leaving the true church. Gerard Manley Hopkins, Lugan Tubber, to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled on drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, a hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. It rebuffed it, this bird, this little bird. Rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. That poem never ceases to stun me. Okay, does everybody have supernatural love? Oh, did, um, did you all get that explication? I, I typed, I wrote out an explanation. Do you have a document? I, I wrote out a, it's, it's from a book that I'm working on. There's a, there's a, Mark, do me a favor, can, can you look in those stacks to see if there's something on supernatural love? We may not have brought it. It, it. There's so much going on in this poem that I'm afraid everybody won't see. So I wrote, I copied this from some work I've done to, get, to make it available. You don't have to read it, but it's there. If, if we've got it here tonight. Supernatural Love is, um, is a poem written by um, Gertrude Schnackenberg. She's an American poet, contemporary. Um, this is an earlier poem. To me, it's an extraordinary poem. When you read the poem, you're going to see that nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. She's a, this is the mother, the woman, looking back at her early childhood experience when she was four. She was a four-year-old child. One day she was um, stitching those samplers, you know, following the pattern of letters in a sampler. The word beloved, beloved. And her father was fascinated with her preoccupation with the word carnation. He couldn't figure out why she was fascinated by that word. Uh, not there. No, no, no. Let it go. I'll bring it next week. Um, she was fascinated by the word carnation, and he couldn't figure out why. So the poem begins when he goes to the dictionary to look up this word, carnation. I hope you all know where this is going, the incarnation. The word carnation means flesh, pinkish. God took on flesh. That's at the center of our be belief. Oh, I got it, Mark. I, I, it's the explication that I was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He took on flesh. He goes to the dictionary like a scholar 
this is one of the great ironies of the poem for me, like men who live in their heads, thinking that the abstract meaning will give it to him. In some ways, I think his daughter already knows more than he does at four, intuitively. Um, and he reads the meaning, and he sees the English, but he also sees the French. And you'll see the two meanings of it here. And both meanings are significant for the, for the poem. He's looking up the word, and suddenly she pricks herself with this needle. And it bleeds. That's it. And she cries out, four-year-old, daddy, daddy. You know, and he comes. That's the poem. That's the poem. The, the interesting thing to note about this poem is that everything in this poem speaks. The scissors, the needle, the flowers, the words off the page. There is nothing in this poem that doesn't speak. So the logos is present everywhere. Does the father see it? I don't think so. Do readers see it? A lot of readers probably don't. But clearly something happens with the girl. I mean, she writes this down later as a, as a woman, as an adult woman. I believe that what happens in this moment is that um, she receives her calling as a poet because she loves words and what they do. And for her, clearly, the origins of that call is Christ, the Logos, the Word. Okay? So when you read the poem, you think, four-year-old, pricking herself. What? These sorts of things, well, here, let me... These things go on in our d daily lives, yeah? Our daughter pricks herself and we, don't, we go get a Band-Aid, that's it. Once again, the poet is showing us that something more is going on. Do we see it? Are we attentive? Are we aware that Christ is there somewhere? Okay. So this is our second poem. I hope I can get through it. <laughs> I, have, I have never been able to read this in these classes. Um, no, I'm, I'm just being honest, so if it happens, you'll bear with me for a minute. Um, Gertrude Schnecken, Supernatural Love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked infinitesimal string. It's as if the word speaks off the page. The obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. Notice the word tomb, okay? And it's the father's study. I'm four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, 
The pink variety of clove, panaccio, the Latin meaning flesh. As if the bud's essential oil brushed Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, the clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clou, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, fresh and nail, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand. It is myself I've sown, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call, on, call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I call Christ when I was four. Think about some things here. I'm not going to take time on the phone, but I mean on the on the poem. But think about some things here. Her words, "Daddy, Daddy," from the cross. Yeah, the tomb, um, the needle, the nail pricking her. The nails on the cross. I think what what we're meant to feel here is that this poem. It's like a palimpsest. It's set over the gospel story. That what's happening here lines up. Reenacts, re participates in the crucifixion itself, but she enters into that. Does the father get it? <laughs> Intellectual? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's in his head. Um, it's to me, it's sort of comic, and I think that's one of the ironies of the poem. His first instinct when he doesn't understand a word is to go to a dictionary, as if that would give it. Clearly, the meaning of that word is so much deeper, and only the poem gets it. You know, she's rendered it to us so. And think about all the other things. Beloved, Paul's letters, he opens them, beloved, over and over and over again, beloved. So every, everything in this poem is speaking, what, from the word, in the word, and she's participating in it. Something's moving her as a four-year-old child to see that there's something going on with words more than people, you know, ordinarily think so. So here's another instance of a lyric in which the poet is presenting a scene like a bird, an ordinary scene, and yet she's showing us that there's so much more going on than ordinarily we see. Okay, so supernatural life. Okay. I hope you all got some cake. Please. <laughs> it, it, I, I, think, I hope I'm saying this. It would be a, mar a mercy to Bob and Marcy if you did. Yes. What are they going to do with that if they go home? Right. So please help yourself. Right. Please help yourself. Yes. Okay. Take some home. Let's start. <laughs> okay. Um, a very, I'm going to try to do this quickly. Um, I hope we get to milk tonight. I'm not going to make any promises. Um, I hope we get to them tonight. We'll see. Um, 
Last week, we talked about um, the importance of the Logos in our lives. I mentioned Benedict's talk at um, Regensburg, where he was addressing a largely Islamic and Christian group and, and expressing his regret that the Islamic world and the fundamentalist Christian world were alike in having lost the sense of the Logos. Because you know that according to the low church Protestant that um, nature's depraved. It's depraved. God, if it's depraved, Christ isn't there. So there's a whole element of music and art and beauty and um, intelligibility, things that speak to us, that's gone in both of those worlds. That was um, Benedict's Regensburg address. It's really an important. If you want to read a good address, go online and it's just short. It's you know, maybe four or five pages. It's a really good address. Um, I also mentioned that I thought Moby Dick was what I would call the exorcism of those Protestant demons. It's my, my reading. That mid-19th century Christianity is in a crisis. You know that. That two ways of reading the world are coming into conflict with each other. A scientific way, a biblical way. And they're not, they're not coming together. There's nobody... I know that there are lots of people writing to reconcile. I know that work is going on. But in popular culture, whatever influence those works have had, it's not great enough to have reconciled it in the popular mind. Those two worlds stand at odds with each other. Moby Dick, I believe, is Melville's treatment of that. He's looking at this failure of Christianity on the northern eastern seabird where you know America was founded, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and that whole New England culture. <clears throat> the whole opening section of Moby Dick is a critique of um, a failure in Christianity. And what it seems to me, one of the stunning things to take about, to, to take away from that reading is that it seems to me it's really hard to read that and not realize if you take away the sacraments, the Christian sacraments from a Christian people, Christianity reduces to a moral code. And that that's never enough to sustain a faith. I think that's one of the truths that Melville is showing us. When Ishmael goes out to sea, he leaves that New England world, Melville is exploring the metaphysical ground of everything that's wrong in that Christian world. Ahab, those of you who've read Moby Dick know, Ahab is going, explain what happened when that whale bit off my leg. Was there a malice in the universe? Is there a malice behind everything, some evil? How, how is it that anybody can pre, be predestined in this world? The thought of that so offends him. That, that humans could be brought into the world predestined to be damned seems so ugly and inhuman. And if you've read Moby Dick, you know that it's largely about that tragic struggle. He wants to strike back at that evil. Um, Ishmael joins that quest. Those of you who've read it know he joins it. Because one of the things that, that Ahab appeals to in that quest is everybody on that boat has suffered. You want to get people's sympathies? Talk about a wound. Everybody feels wounded and justified in getting back. So he's speaking for all of us. All of us want to get back at people who've hurt us. It's a natural thing. So he joins Ahab's quest, and then halfway through, he begins to dissociate himself from that quest, and he discovers how to love. That, that's the action of that book. Um, and his world changes. He finds meaning and goodness everywhere. So those two views are set against each other, Ahab's, it goes back to an old way of looking at things, and Ishmael's. 
So mid-19th century, we're in a crisis. Melville's answering that, I think, there. Um, we talked about the significance of that, the presence of the Logos, and, and what it's meant for our Christian world in, in America. We also talked about the image of the city, and I gave a number of examples of the kinds of cities, because the city's going to be a major image in, for Melville, or I mean, sorry, for um, Milton and Dante, <coughs> major image. You know that all the Reformation thinkers had cities on their mind. How to, how to govern them? Should, should a Presbyterian form of governance direct us, or an Anglican, or? Um, so we talked about the city a little bit. I went back to the origins of the city in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you know that the city comes into existence after Cain's <coughs> exile. Cain kills Abel. God exiles him. Interestingly, God protects him. He doesn't want anybody to do any harm to him, even though he's a murderer. Um, it's a similar sort of thing with Ishmael. Um, Cain's son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So we know that the city comes into existence in man's attempt to live without God. Those are the origins of the city, biblically. The city comes into existence when man, when, once man goes into exile. So the city for us has always um, been paradoxical, double-edged. In it, we find how great man is, that he's capable of doing so much. 9-11, the, you know, the Twin Towers, the bridges and planes. and So the city, in some sense, is a display of this great capacity that we have as human beings. But we also know that it's in the city that most of our worst sins are concealed, covered up. That, that we get away with a lot in the city, particularly when it, in a spirit of anonymity where people can hide. So there was that image of the city. Um, remember that the city, as it was defined largely through the Christian Middle Ages, was Platonic from St. Augustine. According to Plato, those of you who've read him, you know that Plato's attitude towards the body was um, disdainful. He called the body our prison house. He thought the sources of most of our problems came from the body. So the city, according to Plato, um, was punitive. It, it, it was an effort to correct man because generally there was an inclination in man towards de depravity and tended to associate that with the body, with our physical existence. Um, St. Augustine was platonic in that sense. His view of the city was similar to that. One of the differences between um, Plato and, and St. Augustine is that um, according to St. Augustine in the city of God, um, there are two cities, the city of man and the city of God. But there is this other city that he called the peregrine, the peregrine city, the, the peregrine, the wandering, the, the sojourner, the, the, the people who are in exile moving towards God. That was his image of the church. And St. Augustine was really clear that um, if man ever looked towards the city existence as if it were his home, his final resting place, he was in trouble. Because the city here on earth was never meant to be our home. We we're in exile. When Christ came from heaven here, he was in exile. He was not at home. He said that over and over again. He said, there's no place for man, the, the, the son of man to lay his head. He was here in exile. He called us to him to join him in his exile. We, we are wanderers. We're moving towards 
um, the ultimate city, the city of God. And you know everything about the modern secular city is, the, the vision of the city is, it's our home, it's our final, it's the end of things. It's the final end for the modern world. The city's everything, it's where we become wealthy and comfortable and secure and free of dangers and harms and insecurities. And um, St. Augustine said, Thomas would have agreed with him, that's not so, we're in exile. If we ever feel that way towards our homes, there's something wrong with us. Um, our home is with God. Saint, you know that line in St. Augustine's Confessions, um, my soul is restless until it rests in thee. The only rest we'll ever find will be ultimately there. And, that, and you know that's the New Jerusalem in the Bible. It's, it, it's what's described in the book of Revelation at the end. Um, another, another view of the city was Aristotle's. I mentioned that last week. Remember that Aristotle is lost to the West until about 8th century or so. Um, the Arabs recovered him and did writing and finally Aristotle gets to the West. It's the advent of Aristotle that radically changes Western Christian culture and I think really prepares for what happens in the Renaissance. I think really he brings it on, um, produces St. Thomas, what St. Thomas does. Aristotle's view of the city is radically different from Plato's. He believed that man was intrinsically good, that laws were a product of reason and reason from him was inherently good. So laws were meant to protect man's good, to help him achieve his end. Aristotle believed that man was a, a political animal, that we needed each other, and that man could only achieve his natural perfection in a community. And that way he lines up with the ancient poets, Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, um, that there is this natural good man is capable of, um, but he can only achieve it with the help of others, that we need each other. And then finally, we didn't go into this, but I'll just mention it. Those of you who've read the book of Revelation know that, I, I, I didn't bring the Bible, but it, at the very end, I think it's in chapter 21, I can't remember, but there's that beautiful description where John said, I saw a city coming into being, and he starts to describe that city. I think it's probably the most glorious image of the city in all of literature. I saw this city, and he describes it. And you know the book of um, Revelation ends with Christ saying, come, come to the bride. So the, our understanding of the city <coughs> in that book is that at the root of it is this spousal relationship between the bride and the bridegroom, between Christ and his church. And Christ is going, come, and John is going, come. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mutual call to each other. So that the image of the city in the book of Revelation is spousal. You enter into this relationship with Christ. It's the fulfillment of everything that's going on here. Those are some of the images of the city that have been a part of Western culture. Um, we talked about those. I talked about briefly, I just went, um, I gave you that thumbnail sketch of the early history of the church. And remember I said it, it divided down into three. What, what we can call the imperial papacy. Um, it's, it's when um, Constantine um, makes Christianity, Christianity legitimate in the, um, what's it called, the Edict of Milan in the fourth century. And when the Huns, when the uh, um, Germanic tribes begin to attack Rome and Rome's collapsing year by year by year. 
it was Pope Leo that went out to negotiate a settlement. So it was the Pope, not the Emperor, who made that settlement with the um, Germanic tribes. So the Pope becomes embroiled in politics from that point forward and plays a major role in everything that happens. Um, uh, the, the investiture conflict was a m major event during that first phase when the, the Pope resisted the efforts of the Emperor to um, ordain, um, invest bishops. Um, that belonged properly to the church, not the state. You know, the second stage was that period when, um, when the church sort of grew up. Um, all of the popes um, are lawyers. They have to pay attention to the law. They became educated because they've got to deal with all these legal problems between the church and the empire. The, the powers are so great. Um, and remember behind all of that, if, if you go back to that handout I gave you, there are those passages from the Bible. There are two powers, in, inherent authority and natural, an authority that is vested by God. It's a natural. The other is laid on. It's Caesar. It's the difference between Christ's authority and Caesar's. Christ's authority is greater because it's God, and it has as its ultimate end the salvation of every human soul. So um, it's important to see those differences um, because in, in all respects, the church understood itself to have a higher calling, to have a greater authority than the state. Um, Christ obviously was aware that given to Caesar what Caesar, given to God what's God. Um, the whole creation and ultimate end of everything belongs to God. So that idea of those two authorities um, forms the background of all of these struggles between church and state. The third stage, remember, um, um, became what it was because of Aristotle's influence, because of his recovery. Everything that St. Thomas did with him is nothing short of amazing. And when, and when Thomas began to um, um, do his work, you know that he came, those of you who would know, came into conflict with Boniface, because Boniface was, I mean, uh, Bonaventure, was platonic. So two radically different ways of looking at the world came into conflict then. And it took time for the people to see the wisdom that St. Thomas had in what he was doing, and it led to a great reform in the church. Out of those struggles come the, the modern commercial regime. The, the end of that, that long period of struggle, we're talking now, we're 13th century, this is Dante, 13th, 14th century. What emerges out of that struggle is the modern commercial regime. It, it, it doesn't owe its allegiance directly to the empire, the emperor, or the pope. Um, which meant people, nobody could impose a view on, a religious view on somebody else. People had to come to it willingly if they were going to do it at all. Um, and um, you may know this intellectually, you'll see it on every page when you read Dante. Um, you almost can't read a page in which people aren't killing each other over religious differences, whether they're aligned with the emperor or they're aligned with the pope. I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. Families just killed each other. You think things are bad today? <coughs> God. Anyway, out of that emerged um, this new kind of republic and the Renaissance, this, this um, outpouring of art and music and philosophy and new ways of looking at governance um, that gave man a greater measure of freedom. 
and encourage him to take greater responsibility from, for his own life. We moved out of the feudal world into the modern world as we know. Now at the same time that, the, well, so that's what's going on then. It takes a couple of hundred years for the Renaissance to get from Italy to England. It moves west through Europe, gradually showing its influence. Shakespeare, if you've read Shakespeare, I don't know that most people know this. Half of Shakespeare's plays are written in Italy. Take the settings take place in Italy. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Half of them take place in Italy. He writes the three Roman plays, the three Greek plays, um, great Merchant of Venice. Those of you who were here, we did Merchant of Venice and Othello, our Venetian. And they're both set in a modern commercial regime. Ours. Shakespeare knew that, that um, there was a profound wisdom growing out of Rome and Italy that would answer the tyranny in the forms of government everywhere else in Europe. And it was crucial that people learn that, or the tyrannies that people were under would never be answered. That's after, I mean, that's after Dante, but it's just, just slightly before Milton. And you know, and this is where we came, this is where we left off last week, um, that while all of these major changes were taking place in Italy, um, England was in, th in the throes of all sorts of problems. And they were, they were serious because in some ways they reversed the movement that had grown out of Italy. When Henry VIII declared himself the head of the church, he made the state in control of the church. That as a king, he could decide on matters of doctrine. When that happened, it, and, he, and he required that everybody sign off on that, and you know what happened. Thomas More refused to do it, he was executed. What happened was that a, way, a state form of religion was imposed on everybody, and it created all sorts of divisions. The Presbyterians revolted, the Puritans left, the Catholics were already um, disenfranchised. They, they lost properties, the, 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 uh, the church properties were confiscated, they lost their vote, they were disenfranchised. The, the ultimate outcome of that was the Puritans, who had originally been Anglican and thought the Anglican church needed to be cleaned up, they went to the Netherlands, and because things weren't successful there, they left there and went to America. So our founding came out of those struggles in England, directly out of them. All the efforts of the English church to put limits on the king show up in our constitution, a limited form of government. Disestablishment of religion, the first, the first Bill of Rights. We cannot establish religion in this country. I'm going to come to that in a second. But um, So um, all of this turmoil was going on in England, and it was because the king had made himself the head of the church. And he began to impose his will on different people, and they left. Um, that's where we were. Now, hold on, let me, let me try to make this concrete and then I want to get to what was our major question last week where we left off. Um, England went through two civil wars and they were intimately connected with each other. Um, Charles, um, Charles wanted to impose an Anglican form of government on the Scots, who were Presbyterian, Calvinist. And they refused and gathered an army um, to resist him. 
He called Parliament together to, to get the taxes to do it. The Parliament was largely Presbyterian. They would have agreed to do it if, if Charles had gotten rid of the episcopacy that is done away with the Anglican Church. They wouldn't do He wouldn't do it. So Charles went to war with the Scots, and he was defeated. Um, turned over um, to the Presbyterians, who were largely, I mean, the um, Parliament, which was larger Presbyterian. He escaped and made alliances with the Scots again. And the agreement between him and the Scots was that um, um, they would support him if he got rid of the Anglican form of government, which he wanted to impose on them, and accepted a Presbyterian form of government, because most of the parliament was Presbyterian. Um, he refused, they went to war again. Um, in parliament was a man named Oliver Cromwell, who was a military genius. He defeated um, Charles again, and um, this time he didn't escape. When that war was over, Cromwell come back, came back to Parliament and purged Parliament of the Presbyterians because he thought they were too um, unscrupulous, too self-serving. Purged it and made himself the head of the government. He brought to the English government a, a more Puritan spirit because he thought the Presbyterians had become too corrupt. The Presbyterians thought the Anglicans were too corrupt. I mean, they were all at, at odds with each other. And, um, and after um, a short rule, Cromwell dies, and he turns the rule over to his son, who wasn't competent, and England fell apart, and um, bring back um, the heir um, afterwards. It's called the Restoration, I think, in 1660. And, um, and England begins to find itself again. But uh, there's a couple of things that came out of that those conflicts between the king and parliament. One of them is a more constitutional form of government. But what you, we also see is that there are all these different forms of religion that grew out of the Reformation, and they were all at odds with each other. Each one of them wanting to use political power to impose God's will on others. That's, I mean, you just, anybody who reads over that history who doesn't get that doesn't, does not understand what's going on. All these people are deeply committed to Christ, all of them. Um, the Puritans who went to America, the Congregationalists who went to America. Remember, the Puritans were originally Anglican. The Congregationalists were Baptists. They're the ones who settled in America. They're all divided there in England. Um, so what emerges is a more tolerant form of government that allows um, a greater religious a, a greater freedom in, in expression of religion. Milton was at the center of those battles from beginning to end. He started, his, his grandfather was Catholic, his father was Anglican. Milton expected to go into the Anglican church. He converted early on in his life to Presbyterianism, but when he saw what happened when um, the Presbyterians took over government, his comment was, Papists writ large. It was just another form of Catholicism in his mind. And he renounced his pres Presbyterian faith. From that point on, Milton was a religion to himself. There was nobody he could turn to. Because in his mind, they were, they were all as dictatorial, authoritarian as the Catholic Church was. They were telling people what to believe when people should have the freedom to believe whatever they want. That's where we were. Okay. Now let me stop because the question that I left with everybody, I went over Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin to see what was at issue, but let me stop. I want to I want to pick up with this. What are the implications of these beliefs? That to me was the tough question. Before we look at that, though, any 
Yes. Uh, Say your name, please. David. David. Right, yeah, David. Rather insignificant question. When did I don't the word think there Catholic come into being? I mean, it, it, we, we've gone through what you're talking Yeah. and the word Catholic or Catholicism just seemed to come out. What were we called before? Christians? And then somebody said, ah, Catholics? I don't. What, what I know, do you know? Do you know? <laughs> what I, what I know what I what I know is there we it was all one Christian world until the 11th century a united Christendom I, I, I myself don't know when the word Catholicism comes in but it's one united Christicism Christendom in the 11th century 1054 I can't remember the date the Eastern Orthodox Church breaks off and there's a schism that's the first break that leads towards the modern world um, and that's just a couple of centuries before the reformers start. And then these, these dissident groups begin to form, these reformation groups begin to form. But Catholic means universal. Right? But I don't know when it begins Second to... Second century. Second? Is that right? Because yeah. there's a small C Catholic and there's a, a capital C, C Catholic. Yeah. Catholic. Yeah. Large C was uh, second century. And, and even if, you know, because I've go to different churches and they say the Nicene Creed. Yes, we say it all Catholic. They we say Catholic it. because it means universal. Yeah. The, the small C came before the large C. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember reading about it and I do remember it from one of the first centuries and I don't remember it being a response to any kind of um, schisms or partying right. or like, even right. the early Christian right. I just remember it being something yeah. that they, they just felt was an attribute of the church. Yeah. But it wasn't a reaction or a big seat. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's um, this is the catechetical part of what we're doing here and <laughs> I wanted to risk doing this, even though it's sort of touchy, but I think it's really important to, to do it because it, um, it, it helps us deal with Milton, I think, better, and it also helps us understand um, how we got where we are today. I went over the, the, the three major reformers, Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin. You, you remember, I want to just quickly um, go over them. You remember that um, Wycliffe believed the church had become corrupt. Remember, he was writing at the time of the ba Babylonian captivity. The church had moved from Italy to Rome, from Rome to France, was corrupt. Um, when it does return to Rome, um, there, what we call it a schism took place because um, both countries elect different popes. So multiple, multiple popes serve at the same time, each one calling the other the Antichrist. So the church is in, we think we're in a crisis today. I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine what that would have done to the church then. Wycliffe is, Wycliffe is writing in the early part of this, the Babylonian captiv captivity period. Luther will be writing at the far end of it, you know, when we're coming out of it. The church was corrupt um, the, because of the embroilment between the emperor and the church. The emperor had control, the kings had control over the bishops and priests were selling properties. Um, marriages were taking place. 
Um, police, um, priests were um, far too political, low, showing their allegiances to the king when it should have been to the church. So the problems were massive. Um, Wycliffe um, looked at the church and believed that it had, it had become corrupted, and his answer to it was the church had to recover the, the same kind of poverty that Christ lived. He believed that priests were not legitimate priests unless they were poor. He thought the hierarchy should be destroyed, so should the monasteries. Um, he didn't believe the pope had an authentic authority, not from scripture um, or from tradition. He believed a pope could only be truly a pope if he were poor, following Peter and Christ. And you also know that his belief on the Eucharist was he believed that there was no way that the, that the wafer and the wine could lose their original substance. That if Christ entered them, they maintained their wine wafer substance. So a transubstantiation did not take place. If that act had any significance for him, it was what was attributed to that act by the faith of the believers. And he believed that came from the Holy Spirit. And if you look at this and then read Luther, I mean, I, I can't look at it and think, there's nothing original in Luther. It's already there. Everything, everything's already there in Wycliffe. Luther's just picking up what Wycliffe has already done. When we get to Luther, he's looking at similar corruptions. Um, you remember, what, 1517? I think it was 1517 when he um, put his theses on the, on the door of Wittenberg. Um, he thought that the defining quality in a, in a Christian's life was his private experience, the faith that he had as a, um, the, the private experience he had in his faith in God. That the, um, that the church did not need the sacerdotal offices, the priest, um, that the priest could come out of the congregation, that no popes were necessary, and he also believed in the, the transubstantiation didn't take place like quicker. He believed what he called um, tr in consubstantiation. For him, like Whitcliffe, he believed that the, that the bread and wine remained what they were, consubstantiation, when Christ entered into it. The difference between Wycliffe and Luther is this. Wycliffe believed Christ remained locally in heaven. He returned to the Father. There's no way he could come back come back to her. The, the sacrifice had been done. It was complete and over for all time. People could enter into it by faith, but there was no real presence in that act. Luther believed there was a real presence, so he differed from Wycliffe and he differed from Calvin because Calvin believed that didn't happen. So in every other respect, Luther was Wycliffe, except with the sacrifice. Both men believed that there were only two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist. And remember, for Wycliffe, there's no real presence. For Luther, there is, but he believes in what he calls consubstantiation, that a transubstantiation does not take place. Calvin believed um, that no, no, no sacrifice needed to take place, that it had already been done, completed, um, he believed in the ministry of the word. He did not believe in a sacrifice at all. Um, 
if, if they performed a sacrifice, it was purely memorial, it was commemorative. Didn't believe in the real presence at all. He believed that, um, that, the, that the Pope didn't have any authority from Scripture, that all men were depraved and all men were predestined by God, and some men were predestined to be damned. So before they came into the world, they were already damned. All of these men believed in the essential depravity of man. All of them radically altered their views of the sacrament. Okay? Wycliffe did away with it. Luther kept it but changed it. Calvin did away with it completely. He believed that the most important thing was the faith that a man had in God and that faith was given to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Luther and um, Calvin, they believed that the authority of the church came out of the congregation. That's why you get the Puritans, the Congregationalists, that each, each church has its own authority resting in the congregation. If ministers are, um, are to come, they're going to come out of the congregation by choice. Okay? I think that covers it. Did I leave anything out from last week? That's a quick thumbnail, but... So those are the beliefs that people bring into the Reformation. And all of them, all of them are, are disagree with each other. They all agree in one thing. The Catholic Church is the Antichrist. Um, that is the one church that's wrong. And they're very tolerant of each other and have very little tolerance for Catholic for tolerance for Catholics. They think that that everything about the Catholic Church is superstitious, given to rituals, that it's claiming an authority that it doesn't have. Okay? That's where we were. Let me, um, that's where we were. That's just a quick overview. And I know it's not much to go on, but we, this is not the point of this class. We're supposed to get to Milton. But I didn't want to leave it here. And I asked this question, and I really want to take a minute with it, even if it delays our time with Milton. The question that I asked you guys last week was, who cares? And I gave, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't have put it more strongly. If you, if you put Judaism, Islam, and Christianity next to each other, all of them hold deeply religious beliefs. If you, if you try to persuade somebody who's Islamic out of his belief, you're going to get a fight. If you do it with somebody Jewish, if you do it with somebody Christian, you're going you're to meet opposition. Um, People who hold beliefs hold them adamantly. All these people hold these beliefs really seriously. One of the difficulties that Christianity brings into the world is that Christianity, unlike other religions, Monsignor mentioned it, it's sui generis to itself. It's individual. There's nothing else like it. It's absolutely unique. Either the guy who came into this world was God or he was a nut. He, he couldn't claim those things. When he healed the people, the, the Sadducees were horrified because for anybody to do that meant he was claiming to be God. You know, over and over and over again, they kept looking at this man and thinking he's blaspheming. He performed all those miracles. He, he did all this teaching. So either, either he was a nut, a madman, with extraordinary powers, or he was God. The, Jew, the Jewish world says no. The Islamic world says no. Moreover, the, the Islamic world says... Um, there is no trinity, Christ is not God, and one of the tenets of the Koran is to do away with the infidel. So there are radical divisions between these religious groups. So my question 
last week was, and I'd like to take a minute with it, um, who cares? What difference does it make in the way that we live out our lives? If you take a look at the Christian group by itself, you've got um, fundamentalists or Protestant on one side and Catholicism on the other. They all believe in Christ. All of us do. If we all believe in Christ, so what? Leave it alone. <coughs> Who cares? I don't want to leave it there. <laughs> what I want to do is ask, and I'm asking this really seriously. Who cares? What's the difference? And let me take um, Judaism and Islam first. Who cares? It, what? According to those beliefs, how will those people live out their lives that will make a difference between what, say, Islam does and Judaism? Just take those two. If you want to bring in Christianity, do that. But I'm asking this really seriously for a minute. The question is, how do these beliefs shape us? Do, do beliefs matter? And I'm assuming they do or we wouldn't be here. But do we understand why? What difference would it make for somebody who's Islam in the way he lives his life? Or Jewish or Christian? Let's start with Islam just for a second. Any thoughts? I can put this more radically too. Um, the beginning of John's gospel, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and he's affirming Christ and says, Christ is the Word, he, said, he says explicitly in the opening, anybody who doesn't believe that is the Antichrist. And that's a red hot, but say your name, Daniel. Daniel, Daniel. If, if the Islam believes that you must kill the infidel, that's going to affect radically the way they live and carry out their life in a way that's adverse to the infidels. Right? So that may be a superficial understanding, but that's that makes a big difference in the way they live their life. If that's their belief. Dan, you do me a favor, will you? I couldn't agree more. I mean, that that does. But back it off a step, can you? I'm going to say that the Jewish and Islamic. In one sense, you can trace the Islamic world back to Judaism. It's an outgrowth. Um, 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 Mohammed goes back to um, Ishmael, and Ishmael goes back to the Jewish line. So I think it's fair. I, this is all simplistic, so we are on the same ground here. In one sense, they're both under the law. Sharia law is not a small thing for the Muslims. So backing off from the Islam, I mean, that to me is a crucial point, but to make it subtler, keep that off the table just for a second. What difference would it make for two groups who believe that the defining element of their life is law? Justice. Can you pick it up? What difference would it make? Yeah. It depends how they define what the law is and how it's administered. Well, both of the laws for both people actually go back to Moses and the Torah and the Quran and God inspired. So they both believe that the ultimate source of the laws is Yahweh or Allah. Um, but it's how they interpret, though, the, the application of whatever they whatever they do and the, and the strength of what they, you know, they, they put into those, those words and they're, 
they're not necessarily, there's no uniformity with regard to that interpretation because men make that, you know, independently. I mean, And there are real differences in the Islamic groups and, and it, even in Judaism, yeah, yeah. Right, and they try to tailor that to such an extent that no one, Muslims, I think, from my, my perspective, seem like they want to force that issue so that everybody has the same absolute interpretation. I mean, that, it, that, it, that there is no alternative to, to an interpretation. I think that's one. Go ahead. Um, I, do we not live our lives based on like a, a priority or a value system? What we consider virtuous or what we consider to have any kind of meaning, even those that live in passivity and just like the path of least resistance and comfort, we all are seeking something that's meaningful. And the way you view Christ or any intimate relationship, I mean, we're almost defined by our relationship. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's every, even our relationship to this world or something you could say is general speaking as that. But the way you relate in an intimate relationship um, in this case, your your God, right? If you because they all develop that view, that 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 much of a view that there is some type of supreme being that matters. Mm -hmm. That's going to determine the experience you have in that relationship will determine um, what your value system is and your priorities and the way of thinking in this world, and it will change you. I mean, it'll change you just like you said the poetry does. You're able to enter into life and then step out. And come back in feeling something different. As you, re as you relate in yeah. a relationship, you're able to do that same thing. And I think it changes each one's values, and it does change tremendously the way you live, what you live for, how you how you determine. Um, I mean, there's some people that are super analytical, and they're going to do what's logical. And sometimes just the act of charity strikes them as complete nonsense, you know, because they don't understand it. You know, certain acts of love just don't make sense. My question here is, we're, we're talking about people and the way they relate to each other, as you're saying, under, under a, a basic belief in the law as the defining thing of their life. Right. But, but, okay, where I see it pretty simply, because I'm simple, is if I look at the Jews... Agreed um, on that here. I, I look at, I'm just talking about the Jews a moment, right? The Jews were there when Christ came, and they rejected Christ, right? So, in essence, they rejected the concept that God could come down in the form of a human being, right? And, and, and provide forgiveness from the original sin. So, to me, that's, that's the big chasm between the Jews and the, and the Christians. And so that's the huge implications. Do I believe in Christ or not? And so I look at the Islam, the, the Jews and the Islam, um, they look at Christ as a prophet. They don't look at him as being truly man and, and human. So to me, that's the God. biggest, yeah. that's the biggest, yeah split between the two, and to me, that's the biggest thing of implication. Because, again, going back to what you said before, either he's a, he was a crazy lunatic, or he really was God. Yeah. Let me, let me, present, let me present it abstractly to see if I can answer this a little bit better. Um, if, if, if you hold yourself under the, I think everybody, I'm 
disagree if you, if you do. I think everybody would agree. If we, if we all lived according to the law, we would all, all of us, be super sensitive to wrongs. If I hold the law, the tendency is somebody's going to wrong me. We're not going to live up. So as I look at Judaism and Islam, I don't see them ever coming to a peace. No. If the law is the defining thing in their lives, they're always going to be finding somebody's going to do something wrong. Paul says that in his letters. If we live under the law, we're dead. That's what he means, because there's not a Christ. Now, what did Christ do to answer that? Let me go back to where we started. And I, 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 I hope we covered Elizabeth's question. I'm not sure we did, but let me, let me go back to that to try to put this in perspective. The law by itself without love is cruel and bitter, harsh. Paul makes that clear in his writings. If we live by law, we're going to always be <coughs> offending somebody and being offended. I, I believe that the two greatest faults for all religious people, and I'm including myself and Catholics, is if we, if we get too legalistic, if the Jewish side of us gets in the way, it's hard for me to see us doing what Christ asked. I mean, that's one of the things we have to struggle with. I, when I look at it myself, I see, there's that old thing in me, you know. Um, Christ came into the world to answer that law because man had broken it. The, the fault behind all faults was original sin. We broke a law. We broke a law. We were disobedient to God. At, at the source of our problems is the breaking of a law, fundamentally. The problem was that law was God's law. There's no human being can answer it. How can a finite human being answer an infinite wrong? For that wrong to be answered required a God. For it to, to answer the human part of it, he had to take on a human form. Period. That's why all the church fathers argued over this so much because, you remember, I went up, Arian said, Christ's a special man. Sibelius said he's the father in another mode. Nestor said he's one and the other, but they're not perfectly combined. You're already seeing Wycliffe, Luther, right? The church father said, no, he's completely God. That is, a complete union takes place. He's God and man. He had to be a, a real human being to answer the wrongs that we committed as human beings. And he had to be divine to answer the divine part of it. it if it wasn't, the atonement would be incomplete. I mean, I think that was Elizabeth's question. Yeah? yeah that's Here. So look, God had two options. He could have left us damned. He could have forgiven us. The interesting thing about us, and, and Milton's tackling this head on, the angels chose to rebel. Hmm? No, nobody tricked them. They chose. In that instant, when they chose, this is St. Thomas, in that instant, they're gone. They're separated. They, they lose themselves from being. No evil existed, co there's no coexistent evil with God. God is all being. All creation participates in his being. When the, when the angels rebelled, they separated themselves from him. They entered into a darkness. Yeah? The angels chose. Eve was tricked. There were mitigating circumstances. She had working on her the brightest angel. I mean, I, I, I look... That's legalistic. Well, I don't think it's legalistic. Hold on. I mean, I, I, look, at, I look at Adam and Eve as rookies going up against... I mean, how, how do human beings match up against the most extraordinary creature God made? He didn't trick her because she was stupid. I mean, I, I don't even... We're going to have to talk about this when we get to Milton, but... He, 
she was deceived. What God did, in, because of the mitigations there, was, was choose a middle course. He could have left us damned. He, well, let's take the other. He could have forgiven us. What's wrong with that? Or let me, I'm assuming, why didn't, why didn't he do that? Hmm? Thank you. No? I mean, we've already, wait, we've already, wait, I, we've got to go on. We've already done it once. He's going to forgive us? That's a mercy? I mean, there's no reason not to think we're going to do it again. He chose a middle way. By the way, there's Aristotle. And, and that's actually, it's the first council in chapter two of when the three devils meet. But um, he chose a middle way, which is the way of virtue, to avoid those extremes. He sent down his son, who was a god, who took on our nature fully. If it hadn't have been complete, the atonement, the justice answered, would not have been complete. And in doing that, he forever changed our understanding of the law. He did not do away with the law. He says it himself. He, filled, he fulfilled the iota of it. He didn't pass it, but he brought to it a mercy that the world had never known before. Now, line that up with Islam and Judaism and their understanding of the law and play it out in our lives. Because we have, our faith is in a God who asked us to join him to fulfill the law every day of our lives and to give ourselves up in love. Play that out in our lives. Okay? So that was the orthodoxy. I mean, that was the theology to the church up until the Reformation. Now, one more thing just to add to this, to, to show you. If you look back at the ancient world, the, the Old Testament world, the highest virtue is law, the Mosaic law. The first commandment, interestingly, was love your God with all your might. Love your neighbor. So God asking us to love, but it takes the form of a law. The Jews live under the law, the Torah. I mean, that's the defining element in their lives. Do they have before them the image of a God who so loved them that as a God, he allowed himself to be put on a cross? Paul's words, to become a slave, empty himself? That kind of, that degree of self-emptying? Islam, same thing. Do they have in Allah? That's one. The Old Testament image of God is law. That's the Old Testament. Um, the pagan world, the, the virtue par excellence of the pagan world, those of you who've been doing the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Indian, is justice. The four natural virtues of the ancient world were courage, prudence, courage, prudence, temperance, justice. The highest was justice, and Plato's argument in the Republic is justice is the proper ordering of the soul, giving to another. Here, I want everybody to hear this so serious. Plato said in the Republic, the highest virtue is justice because it means giving another person his due. That's the highest virtue of the ancient world under the Mosaic law, pagan law, giving another person his due. Isn't that great? Plato, how can you do that? How can you do that? if you've not learned to order your own soul. We're supposed to start with ourselves, not other people. We have to take seriously making serious changes in ourselves if we're ever going to have a hope of doing justice to another person. But the ideal at stake was 
justice. Wait, hold, I'm almost, oh, give me one, oh, 30 seconds. So, ancient world, the law, justice. Christ comes into that world, he answers justice, and he calls all of us to participate with him and change our own souls, to begin with ourselves, to learn to love, to follow him, to give ourselves up, to fulfill the law. By his words, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. So he, he brought a mercy to the law that the ancient world did not know. That's where, I mean, that, it's bringing us up now to the Reformation. Think isn't actually what's going on in the Eucharist, but sorry, what's your name? Sorry. April. April, sorry, go ahead. So maybe this is because I'm focusing too much in my mind on tragedies, but in the pagan world, isn't it almost that the punishment is too harsh for the crimes more often? That people are over-punished? It's not justice to me if it's over-punishment. But maybe I'm going Here. too far into like yeah. thinking of tragedy. Let me, let me make a quick, because that's all, but let me answer that, because I love that ancient literature. I myself wouldn't put it that way. Mm -hmm. If you look at um, Sophocles, like Oedipus, let me take mm -hmm. Oedipus, because it's the most classic. Some people, like moderns, mm -hmm. would say the punishment is so disproportionate to what he did. Mm -hmm. The other way that you can look at it is that punishment absolutely fits it, because what we learn is there was degrees of disorders in Oedipus's soul that we would, we would never know of in, until it reached that point. Have you all seen the movie, um, what's in the, in the Minnesota hills that snow, the Fargo? Oh, yeah. Have you all seen the movie, that Fargo? Yeah. I remember the first responses of critics of, to that movie was, what happens is so disproportionate to the innocence of his actions. My first thought was, innocent, yeah. I mean, what, what we learned, wait, wait, Father's homily a couple of months ago, why did God allow free will? One answer to that is, he allows things to happen to us. I don't believe God does these things. No, we, we bring these miseries on. God allows evil for one, I, this is my answer. One of the reasons for doing that is because, because he, the, the, the two greatest things he gave us were free will and an intellect, a, a capacity to know and love, mm -hmm. free will. So I get really touchy when people start saying we don't have free will. I mean, you know, when you get off, because that's, by allowing these things to happen, he makes us aware that there's so much more going on in us that very often we don't see, and we don't fully see until we see them play out in consequences. Mm -hmm. And it teaches the gravity of our choices, the, that free will is such an extraordinary thing, we should take better care in the choices that we make because in, in the Catholic world. We are responsible for our choice. That's Dante. Dante is the great, Shakespeare, Dante are the great poets of responsibility. In the ancient world, I'd say, I'd say that the effects of those tragedies are not disproportionate or excessive. For all of them, they show the depths of the evil in the human soul. Because most people want to go around acting like they're okay. The world hasn't changed much in that way. By the way, if you read, if you read, if you read, wait, wait, if you read, um, um, Sophocles, mm -hmm. and you go on to the end of that trilogy with Oedipus at Colonus, mm -hmm. he's blessed. He's assumed into the heavens be because he's con he, he went through a conversion. He's, his whole life has changed. He, I mean, he's, he's one of the most beautiful people in all of literature when you see the wisdom coming out of him and after what happens at um, you know, in Oedipus, the 
Oedipus rips the king when he blinds himself. Yeah, but then his children have all these consequences. Too. Yeah, 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 they should. <laughs> Show me a child that doesn't suffer from his, the mistakes his parents make, but Elizabeth, go ahead. Yes. And you can really do something royal, and he still forgives you. Forgives you. Yeah. Whereas, like in the Old Testament. Yes. 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 It's not empty. She, I don't think she's forgetting that, Mark. I don't think she. I think she's very aware of that. What she, her focus isn't on hell. Her focus is on Christ's forgiveness. Here, I want to. I want to introduce a word here. I want to. I want to go to the reformers just for a minute, and then if we can start Milton, but. I hope there's some sense of how this plays out in our lives, the implications of holding these beliefs, because they, they make a difference or they don't. Remember the question last week was, what difference does it make if you believe in the real presence or not? And what difference does it make? Let me just offer something. The ancient fathers, Theosis, Theosis, T H E I. Did I spell that right? E I, yeah. The ancient fathers, mostly the Greek fathers, had this word to describe what they believe went on in the life of a Christian, Theosis. That over the course of his life, man was gradually transformed into God. The phrase was God took on human nature, God took on human nature so that humans could become gods. Now stop and think about this just for a second. God entered our world, took on our human nature, and he went back with it. When he entered nature, he divinized it. He made it sacred. Now hold that up against Protestant views of nature. Everything in nature is corrupt. He entered nature. This is our God entering nature. Or let me put it differently. Could somebody in the Protestant world or Islamic world write the wind hover? If you believe that nature was corrupt, or let me put it even because we're going to go to America. I mean, here, this, everything that's happening here is going to produce America with this limited government, the, the, the constitutional law that comes out of these battles in England. Could an Islamic world or the Protestant world have produced the Declaration of Independence? Who said no? What's your name? Dick. Sorry? Dick. Dick? Yeah. Why not, Dick? Uh, just the the underlying philosophy of how we became where the laws yes, I, I was back reading about how America was formed and just like the Puritans coming from the Netherlands you know it was they had a certain way that they knew that you couldn't have the law the church and the laws couldn't be one and the same so that was you know your, your Fundamental part of it. Well, yeah. I completely disagree. 
Okay, go ahead. Just keep this brief because we've got to go ahead. The Constitution was written by Protestants. Not one kind. The founding fathers were Protestants. Yeah, they were all Protestants. Yeah, they. Another discussion. Wait, no, hold on. Yeah, hold on. Um, here, one thing, yeah, I'm glad you said that too, by the way. Um, but it, it, yeah, because it came out of that struggle to separate church from state. Yeah, hold on. Um, here, here's the declaration. I don't remember the words exactly, but um, whatever it was, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That has to. No, hold on, because I want to. We were going to move forward. I mean, dedicated to proposition that all men are created. Equal. Two things about that. One is, all men are equal. Do the, does Islam believe that? Not if you've got. Um, um, the infidel. Do the do the low Protestants believe that all men are created equal? No. Calvinist, absolutely not. Absolutely not. What's behind that that constitution? Two things. One is all men are created equal. That's absolutely Christian, and it's a proposition, which means it's yet to be proved. We're in the we're in. The process of a mystery. We have to work to make that real. That's Lincoln's description. I think it was in the Temperance, the Lyceum Address. That's a proposition um, we're struggling to make real in our lives every single generation. Because it will, it will never end. We're either going to keep doing it until we live in a culture. I mean, every, isn't every year still trying to be people of different races, different religious beliefs, past their differences to learn to get along. That's fundamentally at the heart of our character as a democratic people. Absolutely new. Absolutely new. Here, but here, I want to go back to this word. The church fathers had this word theosis, becoming, becoming divine. And I want to put it in this context. Christ walked around, came to his hometown, and nobody saw him as God. Said a prophet, how do you put it? A prophet is not honored in his own town. Why? Because this is the this is the man they knew as a kid. Now here's my question. Here's my question. According to a Catholic belief, we believe that the real presence is there in the Eucharist. Not co, it is real, that that's God. So every time we take the Eucharist, something divine. Not, not in our heads, not in a reading of scripture. It's not an idea. His life is entering us. A divine life is, how many people take communion and believe that? That a divine life is taking part in you. It's actively moving you. It's becoming a part of your life. If that were true, the end of our life would be holiness and sainthood. Sainthood. How many people would see a saint for who he was? If people didn't even recognize Christ, because I'm saying this because I think you're taking the real presence in you, so suddenly you, sh you should become inflated or big or large or mysterious or something other than human. Because look around, I mean, ask all the people, if, if somebody said, I'm becoming God, they'd think you're nuts. And they'd also say, wait a minute, you look the same way you did 10 years ago. They didn't see Christ for who he was. They didn't see the God in him. If human beings are taking Christ in and becoming God-like, if we're actually living, this is my, if we're actually living our faith, 
deny yourself, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. If we're doing that, we're still going to look like a human being, even if we're being changed. Will that happen if your idea of the real presence is in your head? It's an idea. The implications of this for me are, are real. When Christ founded the church, he found, I think the founding moment for the church was, it's interesting because this was a reading. Christ comes to his disciples and says, um, who do they say I am? Who do they, here's, here's Hamlet's opening line. Who's there? Who's there? Who's there? Who do they say I am? Turns to his disciples. Who do you say? Peter, who do you say? He's Peter, this is stunning to me, just stunning. Peter says, Christ, you are God. You're Christ. You're the Son of the living God. What does Christ do? You didn't get that on your own. You got that by the Holy Spirit. That moment founds the church. It shows that Peter is vested with an authority given to him. Christ will give the keys to him in that moment. The church starts then in Peter. Nobody said that. The Holy Spirit. Who confirms it? Christ. Those of you who've been with me know these moments called um, taking the auspices in the ancient world. People would have these omens or something. They'd have to look for a confirmation. They run through pagan literature. The gods were speaking, but they knew they could be they could be misreading. Misreading. They had to look for a confirmation. It's called taking the auspices. What's happening in that moment with Peter? Taking in the auspices. Nobody, nobody, you didn't come to that yourself, Peter. The Holy Spirit gave you that. It's confirmed by who? God. You could say, in one sense, that's the founding of the church. Something divine enters in, and we know, on that rock, I will build my church. That rock is, from that point on, identified with the workings of the Holy Spirit and Christ. Now ask the question, who's there? Peter's, to all appearances, he's the same man he was 20 minutes before. People didn't see Christ for who he was. If we're taking the real presence in and living it, because our understanding is we actually have a divine life working in us, in our bodies, not just our heads, will it make a difference in our lives? Will it make us live differently from somebody who's Islamic, somebody who's Jewish, somebody who's Protestant, or low and high Protestant anyway, I mean, um, low Protestants who don't believe in the Eucharist. So there are fundamental issues here going on in the Reformation. The, and they all have to do with doctrines. The, the reason the church separates out from this is because to the Catholic church, these are all heretical. The Greek Orthodox church, in which I was born and raised, makes its Greekness more important than Christ. I would say the high, high English churches make their national political identity. It, it, it may get in the way of their Catholic beliefs. The question is, is there above any earthly order, Greek, English, it doesn't matter, Italian, Irish, is there a faith greater than ethnic differences? And is there in the Eucharist a real presence or not? If, it, if there is, and people are taking the, divine, the Christ's divine life into them and living it, 
it should change the way we live. Now, this is the context in which Milton writes Paradise Lost. Um, he, he began Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and finally rejected all churches because in his mind they were all, any established church was corrupt. He sits down to write this poem and he takes as his subject the fall of man where all the problems began. So every other epic we read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that dealt with all these problems, behind all of them was this one problem, this disobedience to God. And that's the story we're going to read and see if we can learn anything about the Protestant faith from it. Okay, okay. I think we're... We can stop... Um, any volunteers for food next week? Can we eat a couple, please? Somebody? Don't, don't open your mouth. <laughs> would, anybody, would anybody like some cake? Please. You, you, oh, you, yeah. Oh, yeah. Would somebody please help yourself to cake when you, when you go out? Is nobody going to volunteer? You going to? Thanks. Are you going to volunteer <laughs> with all the food in your fridge that you don't have? That was really good. You're welcome. I hope it was good for you. It was. Yeah, I love it. Our man, the hot boys, especially George Herbert. Yeah, George Herbert, yeah. Yeah, we'll read them. We'll get them. Some of the ones in the back of the bravery. I'm glad to see you. Thank you. I'll get I'll get I just bought this book. Cheers. Oh God! I, I got the program. No, no. <laughs> I'd like to have a serious talk with your father. I, I think it's the whole Christian. I mean, I don't know. I, I, don't, I know education was really important to us. They believe that we had to have strong beliefs and virtues. We were going to live in the market because the tendency of the market was all yeah, but no, that's 
do a sequence of things. It's like there's no way that it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. One country in the drive. Helen, are you? Well, I just have a question. Um, the last week's um, lecture is, hasn't been posted yet, right? No, but it won't be. I just got the tape to the woman who does it, and it might not be up for a couple of days. I should have okay. mentioned that today. Okay. But they're all taped, and generally speaking, people should expect to be able to go to them the week after. Okay. That may not always be so because she may not always do it, but roughly speaking, okay. people can catch up with them. All right, yeah, because yeah, I missed the last one, so I, I wanted to uh, do it. Okay. Okay. okay, thanks so much. Yep, yep. <laughs> We're going to be out of town for two weeks. So why are you telling me? I know. I'm to, to rouse my envy because we can't go with you. Is that why you're doing it? Yeah, we're going to Rochester, New York. So What's in Rochester? Our son oh. and daughter-in-law, what we call her, and uh, our two grandkids. So, These are your first only? Yes. Grandchildren? Yes. Yeah. 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 We have Good one son, yeah. so yeah. yeah. So we go out there and How old are your grandchildren? 16. 16 what? <laughs> 16 years old. Both of them. They're 20. Your grandchildren? Uh -huh. Oh, so they're on. So this is not new for you. No, oh, oh. no, 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 no. They were here for their first six years, and then they took our grandkids away. We said they could go if they wanted to go, but they didn't leave the grandkids here. They didn't go along with us. Well, have a good trip. Thank you. Now, they said we should listen to this. Mm -hmm. Is you don't it need them. You right away? But, um, no, but I mean for one day. I just gave the disc to the woman who puts them online, and I don't know when she'll get around with it, but generally speaking, people can expect to go online the following week to okay. hear what happened the week before. She may be late sometimes, you know, but she's pretty good at keeping up. So a week after or two weeks after, any... Okay, uh, so we'll, meet, we'll, we'll miss next Monday and the Monday following. Okay. So Monday, we wait a week, and then okay. it should be on there. Have a good correct? trip. Safe trip too. Are you going to fly? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, he yeah. said that they won't be on the week after. Oh, okay. Um, just a quick question. If the Catholic Church hadn't been corrupt, if all the priests hadn't done what they've done, sell indulgence and all that stuff, would guys like Wycliffe and Calvin and Luther still come out? I think so. Probably not as adamant or with the depth of conviction. Yeah. Because there's a there's a, what I call a rationalistic quality. There's a the printing presses out reading is more popular. There there's oppression everywhere, political. Yes. You know there's um, large groups of poverty. Uh, it's a Christian people. It's failing. And even if the corruption hadn't been there, there would have been priests upset at seeing what they saw. Yeah. There's oppression and poverty and and the church wasn't doing what in their minds it should have been doing. So. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't, I don't know. And I, you know but in a sense, the Eucharist doesn't have anything to do with that. No, I know what I'm saying. That's a, that's a way of, that's a rationalizing, reducing the meaning of something. I don't think that's... They threw that in there with all the other stuff that they were upset I think, about. I think a rationalizing quality enters the West generally with the Copernican Revolution, with all the philosophies, with everything that's going on begins then in the modern yeah, world. It's not just in the church. The philosophies are all idealistic, subjective. Yeah. Well, okay. um, it's a different mindset. That's, we've got to get out of here. Okay. We're supposed to, I thank you for everything. You're, you're going. Yes, I know. Have a trip. All right, thank you.
Hi. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, uh, Say your name again. Jahida. Jahida. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No worries. Um, I was able to be small. here next I'm week. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want bigger, smaller. So I'll be the other point. Yeah. Just if you want, you can go online. The, the, the classes are recorded, so. Okay. Um, is there a syllabus that you have no. your website on? No, okay. but no. So, you can go on the website and go into the watch and listen, and you get, you get an audio of the class. Well, got it. And what website is that? What's the name of it? If you go into the St. Francis website. Oh, St. Francis. Okay. Perfect. And on the homepage, it'll say watch and listen. Got it. You go into that, and you'll see the class. Perfect. Okay. Wow. Wait, and one more thing. You told me oh, to here. give you the folks. That's. I'm sure this is. Yeah, it's fine. This is. Okay. It's just a different edition. It has some added, some added words by the North. Yeah, that's one I've got, but it's a newer, it's a newer one. Well, you said North Dante, right? It's the other one. I know. Thank you. Yeah. All right, just a quick. You said that the computer is modern. That switch. Say again. Wait, hold on. I didn't even know these were on. You want, you want this box then? Boy, I am yeah. losing it everywhere. I am losing it everywhere. No, I'm sorry.